everyone, and welcome back to Are Your Parents Proud of You? I'm your host, Matthew Schufrader. It's a lovely day when I'm recording this. If only I was outside. Anyway, uh, we have a new guest on today. Her name is Dana Hall. Dana Hall is an accomplished and award-winning author, playwright, speaker, and mental health therapist. Her award-winning children's book, Beyond Words, was released in 2020 and was featured in the anthology Made to Overcome and We All Belong. Musings on inclusion, acceptance, and kindness. In addition, her plays have been featured all over the nation at theater houses. Dana and I had the pleasure to speak over Zoom. So, without further ado, here we go. Uh, hi, Dana. Hi. Thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely. Thanks for asking me. For sure. So, I, I, I always like to ask playwrights. Um, been doing this show for a while now. Um, what are stories? Just uh, I hate to start the out a big question, but uh, what are stories that? What's a story that you think is not being told enough, and what is a story that is being told uh, too much? Okay, um, something that I think is being told maybe from one vantage point is. Um, some of the ex- our experiences of personhood seem to be almost maybe whitewashed or through the lens of like perhaps um, a male dominated view. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's one perspective. But I think as a playwright, what got me more intrigued into actually penning the stories besides being on the stage telling the stories is driving the narrative to represent a more diverse perspective of storytelling. Um, and that includes the female perspective right. and that includes marginalized communities as well and elevating those voices. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that that for me is what I want to see come to the forefront of storytelling is the diverse uh, voice of our society. Mm-hmm. And from your voice, has it changed over time? Do you think... Um... You know, when you started out, do you know exactly what you wanted to talk about or tell? Right. So I started off, my roots were in um, the theater as an actor, and I was doing the traditional stories that um, community theaters and local professional theaters were putting on. And I was playing the parts. And after a while, I started to think to myself, I think it was at a callback for a CBS show where I played girl at bar number two, where I said, hmm, maybe there might be some different stories to tell here. Um, And so I started writing with that lens of everyone has a story. What do I want to talk about? And I started playwriting more officially during the pandemic, which is a terrible time to come up in the arts in any atmosphere. But like in the pandemic, it was rough. But um, I think I was able to use my screen experience, my acting experience and my storytelling, my writing at, at a crucial moment in history during this pandemic where we were doing more virtual productions. And that was kind of my launching ground was into that virtual foray. Um, so the story I started to tell one was a fun comedic story. That was my first story to tell and I loved it and it was entertaining. And then I got thirsty and I wanted to kind of dig in deeper and expound on the characters. 
and um, not worry so much about the traditional realism. And that's kind of where my narrative have switched a bit, um, was this very realistic. First, it was Zoom-based or, um, you know, um, internet-based play, and then using that vehicle. Then it was more realism on the stage. And now I'm looking at more experimental or symbolic um, play within my dialogue. And that's kind of where I'm moving towards. And I feel like that might be the best vehicle to tell collective stories that we can all attach to. Um, so yeah, so it's it's been a ride. It's been a roller coaster. And I've had to learn to get out of my own way. What I think I want to tell often shifts when I start typing. And I've learned to stop trying to direct it and start to experience it and get to know these characters versus try to put words in their mouth. So as a playwright, I, I, I've had to humble myself in that regard of I'm more of an observer than a writer. Mm. And are most playwright, I, I'm not a playwright, obviously, I, I, I just interviewed them. Um, are more playwrights more observers or are they not? Well, I think we're taught in a traditional way of writing. And with that traditional way of writing, we know what we have to hit, almost in how many pages we have to hit it um, to get that arc and resolution. And what I'm starting to play around with is stepping back and letting the character speak through me in the story that they want to tell, which sounds, I know, crazy, but it's a, it's a, it's a real process um, to, to really get out of your own way and just let, let these characters talk and then not worry so much about this conflict and need of resolution, because the reality of our experience, especially going through what we recently have and what we're going through now, um, there isn't always a night, nice neat bow that we can tie things in. And so I've started to step away from trying to do that, which I do think is a pinnacle of playwriting. There's a lot of uh, very prescribed um, for formulas for writing and such. In the play, one of the playwright groups I'm in, we just had an extensive dialogue about Courier New versus Times New Roman. I mean, this is where we're at. And here I am talking about letting the character drive and exploring movement and sound and a sensory experience on the stage. So it can be challenging to navigate those waters and especially as a female playwright. Um, so I'm cognizant of those obstacles but I think we all have to be true to our version of storytelling. And when we are, we will change what the tradition is. For sure. I, I was, you know, I was a teacher for a couple of years and uh, I, I love asking professors this as well, but I think even from playwright, um, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but you, 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 always, you always put, I think you put a little bit of yourself in the play, whether it's not even through the words, but through a character, you know, like I said, when I teach, um, yeah. I, I see a little bit of me in the, uh, when one student or another, not just, I'm not looking at a mini me, but I'm looking at um, a, a borderline like, oh, I done that, or I still do that, or I would have done that. Um, for you, is that something you, do you see part of Dana? Do you write a, a, a character of yourself in your place? 
So that's such an interesting um, concept because I think we look at that with all works of art. How close is the creator to the creation? And I have to believe in everything that we do, there's some piece of us in there, right? How could there not be? Sometimes I see it more than other times. Um, for instance, I'm a part of an experimental playwriting workshop group that meets every Tuesday. And my work was being read last night. And um, it's a piece that I don't especially feel personally close to, uh, but the themes I do. Um, but last night when when they were reading, the, the actors were reading the piece, I had to turn off my camera because I was so overcome with emotion. Um, one of the lines, I hadn't realized where it came from. There was a line that said um, a mother and a daughter were speaking to each other and the daughter was trying to leave um, an abusive dynamic. And the mother had said to her, um, don't you remember when your daughter was born? And when they handed her to you, you tried to quiet her. And the daughter says, yes, she was going to wake up the whole floor. I, I, I tried to comfort her. And the mother says, remember what the doctor said. He said, it's not those that cry out that we're worried about. It's the ones that we don't. And I hadn't realized it, that I wrote that, but that happened. That was my literal experience with my daughter, but not in that context. And I hadn't heard it like that, the way that it came out with these actors portraying these parts. Right. And even though I wrote it, it was like I was experiencing it for the first time. And I think that's the power of theater is that every time can be like the first time. And it's truly magical as playwrights what we get to do. So yes, there's a piece of us in it. And sometimes it's closer um, than other times. And that time it snuck up on me <laughs> how close it was. Um, and, um, you know, that's the beauty of this work. You can watch a show on TV and it's the exact same show every time. We have our favorite episodes. We can binge watch and it's the same, it's the same. But each time I see one of my works, it's different. It's different every time. And there's something just so beautiful about that and poetic. Right. Are you thinking about it right now? Not to. I'm thinking about all the times that um, I felt moved by theater in general. And, you know, sometimes uh, we'll walk into a show as a consumer of theater, as right. a house member, and we'll say, I didn't like that. Like, it, we just had this experience for like, an hour two hours I see Shakespeare so five hours you know right. we have these and then people walk out and go yeah no that wasn't for me and I'm like all of it every moment there was not one moment and even in the parts that you didn't like why didn't you because sometimes we are not as humans good with being uncomfortable and yeah. sometimes things make us uncomfortable and we push them away and I have had to, to learn to lean into those sharp edges if you want to write things that matter. Right. And so that's kind of what I'm thinking about in terms of my um, coming up as, as a playwright. Um, that's a tough area because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of room. Um, and sometimes within that room, 
you can try to pull from this and this and this and get lost. So you really have to find your voice within it. I, I, I'm, I'm, this is reminding me, I was, I work at a theater. I'm not going to say the name of the theater for the sake of not calling them out. Um, but I was leaving the show and I was on my break and it was one of those two show days. And uh, I was leaving what I was leaving. And this, I, I hear this older couple, 65 and older, of course. Uh, and the old man goes, well, that was some hippy dippy BS. And it was one of those, I'm like, well, you think that, but that was the playwright's vision, my friend, uh, whether you like it or not, it might have been hippie, it might have been dippy, but uh, that's what they wanted. Right. And and the fact that, you know, and, and as a playwright, I'm okay with that. I've sat in the house before and I'm okay with the, give me anything, give me a reaction because it made you feel something. Um, and, and that's what we're here for. Not everything's going to be your cup of tea. That's fine. Um, but you consumed it. And so now that's within you. And these plays, just like meeting new people, it doesn't just happen and then it's over. I've seen works and I've created works that I've thought about years after. And so sometimes it may not hit, but then years later, perhaps with that gentleman, a topic comes up from maybe one of his younger family members. And he's like, oh, I remember there's a show about this. You know? yeah. Like I've had that happen before. Um, okay, I, I saw that somewhere. Um, we just never know where that influence is going to go, where mm -hmm. that ripple is going to go. So I think that's that's the beauty of it. Right. Well, speaking of first, uh, let's talk about young Dana. What were you like as a child? Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> I was the, uh, I was creative. Um, and I tried a lot of outlets for that creativity. And I tried uh, drawing and painting. And that really wasn't my thing. Uh, I went into the stage acting and I did some modeling and that that wasn't my thing at that time. So I think I was kind of like um, in search of my creative home as a child. And I would try things out. And I come from a blue collar, middle-class family in the suburbs right outside of Chicago. Mm -hmm. So the arts were a luxury. Um, and a luxury, a lot of times we couldn't afford. And my parents being very practical and wanting the best for me, wanted to push me towards university, even at a young age, everything was in preparation for university. Um, I love sports, sports fit into the narrative because sports could get you scholarships for the university. So um, I was kind of, <laughs> so um, South side Chicago, that, that, that is the narrative that that's what you do. And so that's what I did. And I checked all the boxes as a kid, but yet, you know, after college and like towards the end of college, I, I, my undergrad, I was like, I checked the boxes, but I'm not happy. Yeah. Like, and, and it blew my mind that you could check the boxes and not be happy. You know? Yeah. Um, what, what, and then what did you, what did your parents do? Were they ever interested in the arts or was for them like, oh, this is something that she's going to pass. This is just going to be a passing phase. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so I loved, um, 
I loved comedy. It was it was a wonderful vehicle for me. And my plays have a lot of humor. Even my very dramatic plays still have this element of humor to them. And growing up, I love my mom dearly, and she's my best friend in the world. And my mom's, if I could quote her on what she would say to me in her back of the yards kind of accent, would be, "You're not funny, Dana. <laughs> You're not funny. You're not funny." Yeah. Um, but she would say that, but I would see her smile. And so it was almost like my my goal then to amp up my humor, my physical comedy, my improv. Um, I would sneak up at night and watch Saturday Night Live. I I, I would sneak, I would, I would nap if I had to, just to get to see the skits. And and then I would mimic them. I would I would perform them. And um, I was doing Radner's pieces. I was doing things that I saw my mom and dad really like. And so I was doing those things. And I didn't obviously realize that at the time, this sense of mimic was a way for me to maybe normalize or to show them more of who I was mm -hmm. through these imitations of these actors. Um, I would do Carol Burnett. I would, I would do all of these things and, and, and I would see them smile. And I felt that sense of validation that those of us in the arts are so aware of. I call it the Tinkerbell syndrome. We right. get that smile, we get that applause and it just feeds us. And I was fed by it even as a child. Um, so I would do school-based um, productions and such, but my parents, they didn't really push it though. They really wanted for me, I think, what they thought was the best life for me. And I think people in the arts hear this a lot. You can't make it in the arts. You can't have a career in the arts. You yeah. have to do something arts adjacent, you know? And, you know, I know that they wanted the best. And I just know that, that what they had wanted for me just didn't necessarily completely align with my vision of who I am and what I wanted for me. So I kind of did it on the sly or... <laughs> I audition, I'd find rides, um, this sort of thing. Um, and, you know, in college, I remember inviting them to my first production and so, that they would see and really main stage production. And I remember afterwards, my dad says, wow, you can act. Like he was surprised. Like I had been doing this for <laughs> took him this long to realize that <laughs> this one moment he was like huh okay okay see what you're doing um but yeah it, it was almost like they needed that external validation that this is viable they needed that um and and what's nice is that i think what helped their lens a bit is my my mother's brothers were artists um beautiful painters, sculptors, uh, multimedia um, design and, and, and just wonderful things. And my mother's closest relationship is with her eldest brother, who was an artist by trade. And so I think that eased the ground for me a little bit, like, okay, she's, she's an artist too. And we, we can let that, we can embrace that now. Um, so thankfully, those that came before me, my my relatives before me, kind of maybe greased the wheels a little bit in terms of my parents' understanding of the arts. Right. What was um, that? Uh, what was that production that your dad saw that he was really impressed with? 
He saw me as Titania in A Midsummer Night's Dream at a university production. Was this at uh, Xavier? This was at St. Francis. St. Francis, um, okay. Yeah, right. So I went to St. Francis undergrad, and then I went to St. Xavier for my master's, uh, a dual master's program. So I was there for quite a while. I was there for like eight years. Wow. Um, yeah, so I have my degree in uh, clinical psychotherapy. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah, what... Because I know this is a lot of your research and work is sort of based on this and you are a clinical therapist for a while, uh, still am, still are, excuse me. Uh, but uh, what did that, how did that come to be? Uh, what, what Was there a shift, you think? Well, here's the thing. Um, the arts are about storytelling. When yeah. you're an actor, when you're a model, when you're a playwright, you're a storyteller. And... I'm invested in the narratives of others and the form doesn't necessarily matter as much as the function. So um, it was easy for me to listen to stories and want to be a part of those narratives. So therapy was organic and, and it is, it's something, it's a passion, but I realize it's not my full, like you don't have to have one thing that's your thing. And what I grew up being taught was like, you did. This is your thing. Do your thing, um, and, and and try to find something that's really stable to do, right? And what I've realized as a creative is that if you're a creative, you're a creative, and you're going to find a way to do that. And you need to do that. You need to feed that part of you. So I I went through all of the traditional training for psychotherapy, and I have my own practice. And what I had to learn was balance, because at the end of the day. It doesn't fulfill me 100%. And I'm a much better therapist when I'm also doing art, when I'm also mm -hmm. writing. And I had, to, I had to just radically accept that. Stop trying to push away the arts, bring them in, and then find a way to navigate with the arts and with my professional uh, clinical practice. I don't have to trade one for the other. And I spent a lot of my early career thinking I had to trade one for the other. Right. Because it, because because you think maybe it's just for my sake, like what's going to help me focus and make and financially help me, which is this job that may or may not pay me, and it may get my name out there in different ways and kind of broaden. Not and not knowing that this other passion of mine can do just the same uh, for me, right. you know. Right, and it's about honoring that um, creative inside of us. And all of us have that. And, you know, in school, we see that in, in our early elementary classrooms, we'll see kids who are the creatives. Oh, we want so-and-so in our group because they can draw, they can write, they can act. The creatives are very advantageous when we're little. Everybody wants one in their group. But little do we know that all of us have it and those creatives still have it when they grow up. We just aren't always um, sought after in the same ways because we don't put our creativity back out there. Um, we don't disappear, but we, I, I feel like it's each of our jobs to find how we can continue to have that creativity within our life and make room for it. Because I think it makes us better people. It makes um, for better society and it continues to give us a sense of fullness. So, you know, that, that's something 
that I also felt got tucked away. And having kids of my own, I see some of that where it's very encouraged now. But there comes a point where we're like, okay, enough of that. And that's a major mistake, and I think in education and society in general. Is education is has education changed then, or has it, is there something missing uh, from it now? You think that not to call out your kids' schools or anything? Obviously, we're not doing that. Uh, but like a general topic and something in education that is not being discussed enough. You think? Yeah, you know, I think the personal narratives. Uh, Student-driven learning is essential, and my my children go to a non-traditional school, um, but I've worked in traditional schools. I've spent a lot of my career as a guidance counselor in Chicago public schools, and I would say the emphasis on the student narrative needs to be elevated and trauma-informed education as well, because the stories that we carry come with us into that classroom. And there's no better way to reach a child than to understand them and teach from there. So differentiation, not everyone should get the same instruction. And right. I know, you know, with funding, and I know the, the pitfalls of what I'm speaking of, but idealistically, if you're asking me, like, what would I add to the curriculum? It would definitely be a stronger social emotional component and specifically in our school system, a trauma-informed level of care to teach these children what to do with the difficult emotions that they may be carrying so that they can absorb the education around them. Um, and, I, and I think playwriting is a vehicle for this. Mm -hmm. um, however we teach children to express their narrative, this is this needs to be in the schools. It's not an extracurricular activity. Having a voice isn't an elective. <laughs> and I, we need to stop doing that to the arts. Um, and we need to start really honoring it as a vehicle for self-discovery and for education. So I would absolutely advocate for putting playwriting, theater, and art into the mainstream of curriculum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. Uh... When I was in college, I did a practicum and teaching practicum at uh, Collaboration Studios, if you ever heard of them. Um, and mm. it's an after school program for kids and high schoolers. But uh, the one thing we would do when the kids, well, the kids would do uh, is they would start do a show from scratch, write the play out. Yeah. So we would spend yeah. a couple of weeks, you know, writing the play. And, you know, the one thing I would tell the kids is this is not my story. I am not, I am not directing you. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I am only, I am here to sort of guide you rather than direct you because I don't, obviously, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what you're going through, obviously. And I can't relate to what you're going through, obviously. So really tell your story and let me follow and, and not add, but just sort of guide uh, if that makes sense. And so, yeah, those, the kids are great. Um, they do great things. Um, segue, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Beyond Words, uh, this little program that you started. How did that, what is, so for others who don't know what it is, what is it? And then uh, how did this become to be? Yeah, so Beyond Words is a psychoeducational kind of um, group that I've put together that it has a social media platform and it centers around a story 
called Beyond Words that I wrote in regards to my son's experience with a disorder called apraxia of speech, which is a severe neurological disorder, which he knows what he wants to say, but he can't produce the words to say it. And it affects children in mild, moderate, and severe forms. And it can also be globalized, meaning that for my son, um, he couldn't learn uh, sign language because it would it affects his fine motor skills. So he would uh, be speaking in approximations of words as well as signs. So um, beyond words came about as my son was going into kindergarten, I was deathly afraid to send him to kindergarten because he was nonverbal. Um, and I worried for his safety if he would make friends. Like, how would how is this gonna how is this gonna happen? And um, so I wrote it after a trip that he and I had to a park where he would play this part. When we got to the park, he would act as this lava monster. So he didn't have words, but he could growl and he would let out this guttural like noise, and the kids would run and he would laugh and chase them and. I saw it as him finding a way to bond with the kids at the park because uh, he very much wanted to build friendships. Yeah. So he would do this and he would do this and do this every time we would go. And then one day I was sitting and didn't hear him. I started looking and I found him under a slide and he was crying and he signed to me, no more monster mommy. Mm. So, um, I, I had one of those parent moments where I was like, okay, I thought all this time he was engaging. I thought all this time this was fun. And what I came to realize was he was assimilating, but he was doing it in a way that he was losing a part of himself and that he didn't want to do. So he thought the only way to engage was to be something other. And so that night I came home cried my mama tears. <laughs> um, and I wrote in my journal, um, beyond words. I, it was just, a, it was just a journal entry. I just free write just a journal entry, just to process that experience. I shared it with a few friends and, um, who shared it with a publisher who reached out to me to want to make it a children's book. And, um, that children's book this year, it's great that you mentioned it because this year we're going to the Apraxia National Convention um, and um, Beyond Words will be featured there. And um, Apraxia Kids is sponsoring that, um, that national convention. And last, before the pandemic, there was 15,000 convention goers at that event. Um, so this rare disorder is something that isn't quite as rare perhaps as we have uh, labeled it. Um, so it's gaining more awareness and more study. And I'm glad to have my son's story beyond words be a part of that continued psychoeducation about um, this disorder. And in particular, this book is really geared at teaching other kids how to be inclusive and advocates and friends um, with other students and friends that have learning differences or communication disorders. You know, um, that changed my son's life. He met his best friend the first day of school. And from there, he just flourished and he has lots of friends. And, and now he is verbal, but he does have limitations with his verbalization. But the friendship that his best friend has with him 
was the um, piece that helped him in his social engagement. So Beyond Words is also a nod to all those kids that speak up and out for other kids and who realize that friends come in all packages and they, right. and we all have a lot to contribute. So, um, so that's our little nugget of a book and we'll be doing, my son and I will be doing a live reading of it um, on the second week of May. Um, on Apraxia Kids Facebook page, we'll be doing a, a reading of it. So awesome! Has your son read the book? He has. He does not like the part where it shows him crying. <laughs> he does not like that um, <laughs> because he says when he first, I said, "Why don't you like it?" And he, because he was part of the creation of it, right. so he knew that was in there. Um, but he's he always says, "I don't like this." To say why, and he says. Um, because I remember what it was like to have that bubble gum in my mouth is what he calls it because that's what it felt like to him that he was trying to talk through a lot of bubble gum and no one could understand him and um, but he was also involved in the illustrations so he drew a couple of the pages in the book um, were his actual drawings so he feels a sense of pride in it and he's learning more about himself and about the disorder and how it's affecting him and he's learning how he wants to be an advocate for himself and for others. So it's a beautiful journey to watch as a mom, his relationship with the text change as he grows up. That's great. Yeah, and uh, we're, you know, we're running low on time, but I have to ask, uh, uh, you're, you're part of Patchwork with Eclectic Full Contact Theater. Uh, is this your is this your first time for a play uh, since the pandemic being back on a stage? Oh my goodness, yes. How's <laughs> it my feel? First time. <laughs> Last Friday, I I oh my goodness, I got to sit in the house and see this beautiful um, patchwork production that they're doing um, with these live shows, and they're also love this that they are also um, uh, recording it so that people out of town or those that don't have access or equity can also uh, view the piece, which is a lot, if we could take something out of this horrific time that we've been in, at least I, I feel like we're taking more accessibility and the need for accessibility in our consumption of the arts, which is lovely with the immersive theater that we're seeing at the Art Institute and um, Patchwork Festival. Um, so, but yes, I, I got to sit in the house and see <laughs> see this piece um, come to life uh, in front of me again. And boy, uh, you don't realize how much how much you miss something until you see it again. <laughs> right. I, I was lucky enough to do um, plays this last, this last fall, and it didn't hit me how good it feels to be back on stage again. Probably until our third to last show. Uh, I was doing Death Trap and I was very fortunate to be doing it. Uh, but like the first week I was like, all right, yeah, it's like uh, we never left and that was fine. Um, second weekend was fine. Didn't really experience it. It wasn't until that final weekend. I'm like, oh, this is going to end soon. And uh, I don't know when I'm going to be doing this again. Right. You know, right. Uh, you, you, you didn't realize how much you're going to miss it uh, until it's until it's over. But so. Yeah. Uh, we have time for a game, and this is my favorite game of all time. It's called Time for Two. It's called Time for Two. Two minutes on the clock. Uh, two minutes, random icebreaker questions. No right, no wrong. I just want to hear your opinion. Okay. You ready? All right. Okay. Sure. Real. 
as ready as we get. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, three, two, one, go. Favorite president? Uh, Obama. Uh, favorite kind of chip? Doritos. How do you spell theater? R-E or E-R? Oh, R-E. Would you rather have the cold or the flu? Um, I'm <laughs> going to go with cold. Right. AC or DC? Um, AC. What part of the human face is your favorite? Eyes. Worst job you ever had? Oh, good lordy. Um, uh, let's see. I've had, I've had some doozies. Um, secret shopper. Ooh. Uh, uh, who let the dogs out? Me all the time because I have three of them. <laughs> uh, Ron, Burgundy, Ron Burgundy or Ron Swanson? Ooh. I'm going to go with Burgundy. What is your favorite smell? I had COVID, so I can't smell anything. No! Oh! say lavender. <laughs> well, all right. Uh, next, next question. Uh, are you a listener or... It's okay. Are you a listener or a talker? Um, both? I'm going to say talker. Cool. Uh, uh, favorite beetle? Um, uh, all? Okay. Uh, is there a role you wish you got? A role I wish I would have gotten. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, that's a tough one. <laughs> no worries. Um, oh, the clock is ticking. I don't know. I one day I hope to play. I hope to play Lady Macbeth. I'm. Oh. Eight, I, I hope to. That's my goal for aging. To Boom! And that's how we play time for two. <laughs> right. I'm telling you, you got to bring. Yeah, you survive. Yeah, you survive. You survive COVID and you survive time for two. So I want that on a t shirt. <laughs> no, it's survive COVID and survive a podcast. Uh, that's there how most go. people do it. Uh, Dana, I, I've had so much fun listening to you. But before we go, uh, I have to ask uh, Are your parents proud of you? Interesting. I think absolutely. I think I think my parents are absolutely proud of me. I think this wasn't the direction they saw things going, but they love to see me happy. And the bottom line is you have to be proud of yourself first and foremost. So yes, and I'm happy to say that living my truth now, um, I'm much more happier than I've ever been. That's awesome. Uh, Dana, I can't thank you enough for coming on and going through all the constant emails we've been through to schedule this, but this was so worth it. Thank you so much. So we didn't mention that her work uh, underneath was featured in the Patchwork Play Festival, but what we did include, because this was recorded before we, the announcement was made, that her play underneath was voted the Audience Choice Awards for the festival. So congratulations to Dana for that, and thank you to Eclectic Full Contact Theater for producing that play. My thanks for Dana for coming on next week on All Your Parents Proud of You. I'm going to speak to another friend of mine, actor Alex Albrecht. My thanks to Griffin McCorrigal for just keeping me sane. Thanks, Griffin. All right, folks, I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Oh, wait, you thought I was going to not plug in my social medias? You thought wrong. 
Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram at Parents Proud Podcast, and don't forget to email us at parentsproudpodcast at gmail.com. Oh, I should probably check those emails right about now, but it's nice out. Alrighty, folks, thank you so much for listening. I am Matthew Schufreiter. We'll see you next time.